Hey folks, welcome back to In the Chill of the Night, episode number 14. Uh, I know we'd like to remind you, please go ahead and check out our website, www.rffactor.com. You'll find all sorts of content on there related to not only uh, true crime stories and investigations that are, that are associated with those true crime stories, but also uh, leadership content. Hey Pete, how you doing today? Good, Ray. How are you? I know we're joined by a, a great guest, uh, Mike Bouchard. Uh, Mike, you, uh, I'm very interested in your take on this investigation, which is uh, the Beltway Sniper. Um, I remember I was a young trooper when this was going. Actually, I was a detective at the time this was going on. And you know, I had to remind myself when I look back at the date here that this is actually after September 11th. Which is interesting uh, because it, it, for some reason in my mind's eye, I'm thinking it's before September 11th, but it wasn't. And I think there's uh, there's some significance to that too, based on uh, how police respond, how investigators respond, how the, the the federal agencies for which you were a part of at the time all come together to share information and certainly identify the perpetrators. So, without further ado, how are you, sir? And and uh, Hey, tell us about yourself. Good to be with you guys. Um, I started uh, as a police officer in the late 70s in Connecticut. And uh, after getting my degree in arson investigation, I joined ATF in Washington, D.C. And worked uh, a number of different assignments in Washington and uh, a bunch of different uh, supervisory assignments uh, from intelligence. And eventually I retired as assistant director for field operations. But during the Beltway Sniper investigation, uh, I was a special agent in charge of the Baltimore Field Division, which uh, covered Maryland and Delaware. So a number of the shootings, in fact, they, the, the sniper case originated in Maryland. So um, as the special agent in charge, I, you know, I was the ATF lead on that case. Uh, you know, uh, I just realized that uh, this is going to be problematic because you're both from Connecticut here. I think you're I think you're going to team up on me here. You know, I just want to say that I knew him when. OK, <laughs> I, I knew him when he was a, a nobody in the police department. <laughs> in, in Connecticut. He, won't admit, he won't admit this, but I taught him everything he knows. But no, so, uh, did you guys did you guys know each other yes. at the police department level? Yeah. yeah, we were working some, uh, or, well, organized crime uh, arsons. Uh, I was a local and Pete was ATF. Oh, That's Pete, how we, well, Pete was in the ATF by then. Yeah, yeah. we worked We worked together and then uh, Pete was instrumental in helping me get uh, get on with ATF. Wow. Um, I, was, I ended but, up but being in Washington. His, <laughs> my old partner, when I was a local cop, became his partner on his job. You're kidding. Yep. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's how we met. We, you know, we're friends. I mean, we socialized together. So I I know him when, you know, and uh, you, you're not going to find a, a better a better guy than, than, than Mike Bouchard. I'll well, that right well now. Be, before we get started with the story, uh, tell me about the best pizza over there. Tell him. Tell him the truth now. Go ahead. Well, I personally like modern, but uh, this is my <laughs> number one pick. Yeah, that's okay. what I tell him. I tell him that all the time. <laughs> all right, okay. Pe Pepe's has a place down in Alexandria, Virginia. I think you sent it to me. Yeah, yeah. 
And um, there's a good place in New Jersey called Patsy's in, in Hoboken. That's a pretty good place. Grimaldi's, really. It's Grimaldi's. But um, I used to love the pizza there, but it doesn't compare to the modern. <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, I shouldn't say this, but uh, just the other day I went to Whole Foods and and I know it's commercialized, but wow, it was pretty good pizza. Oh, <laughs> so well, they, they cook it. Anything they cook there in a good hot oven, I guess. Is, that's is right. Bad. So, I mean, how, how bad can you ruin a piece of dough and some nice sauce? Oh, you'd be surprised. So, <laughs> so Mike, uh, I know I interrupted you, but, uh, you know, please, I'm very interested in this story. Yeah. So uh, I became the special agent charge in, in uh, Baltimore in the summer of 2002 um i was just coming off working the 9-11 the pentagon scene so uh you know we had we're just reeling from getting over that and then uh i had met chief moose who was the uh police chief in montgomery county where most of the shootings occurred so he and i had met and uh, we talked about working some some different gun cases jointly etc so he and i already had a relationship which was very important as this whole uh case evolved so um, on September 2nd, I was at the Maryland Police Chiefs uh, Conference out in Ocean City, which is about two hours away from D.C. And we were all preparing to go out to the IACP meeting uh, that, fo- that same weekend. And then these shootings occurred in uh, Montgomery County. You know, first um, at a Michael's store, a, uh, a bullet went through a window. Nobody knew where it came from. Nobody thought much about it. The next evening, another store nearby in a strip mall, a gentleman walking the parking lot from his car, going to get groceries, goes down in the parking lot. People thought he had a heart attack. Uh, They they run up to him, which is across from a police station, found he had been shot. No witnesses. Uh, He eventually passed. So um, in Montgomery County, is a relatively peaceful county. They would have three or four murders in a year. Uh, The following morning, at, at, at this point, this is really, it's not really at your attention yet at the federal government. This is all just what's perceived to be uh, local issues at the time. Correct. And the following morning, three different people were shot. A woman sitting on a bench waiting for a car, uh, waiting for a, a bus, a lady vacuuming her car, and another guy cutting the grass at a car dealership. All three of them uh, were shot. Um, the gentleman who was cutting the grass, people thought he got hit by shrapnel from the lawnmower to kick something up. So they didn't treat that as a shooting until they got him in the hospital and found he had a bullet wound. So uh, that morning of September 3rd, there were three murders uh, in within a couple, about two miles of each other. Uh, my, my assistant agent, special agent in charge uh, showed up at the scene along with the resident agent in charge and they called me to tell me they were going to be assisting Montgomery County in these shootings on the ballistics uh, if they needed any, any uh, assistance. Um, so I came back. I decided I was going to leave the chief's meeting and come back and meet with Chief Moose and see if there's any assistance that we could offer because the ATF laboratory was about a mile from the uh, Montgomery County Police Headquarters. So I came back that afternoon, met with Chief Moose, and then uh, shortly, Right, right around five or six o'clock, a gentleman in Washington, D.C., about 100 yards over the, the line from Mar- Montgomery County, Maryland, was shot um, crossing the street. Now, this poor gentleman was getting prescription medicine for his wife who had cancer and was bedridden. 
and he was shot through the head. So now we knew, you know, we had an issue, but, you know, we started looking at, you know, each victim, there were some, some women, different race, they were all doing different things, different ages. So we're kind of wondering, you know, not likely to be gang related. What's going on? Um, is, are there any commonalities here? They all happen different locations. So um, we started a, a task force that following day, uh, Montgomery County, ATF, um, the local AT, uh, FBI office came and um, the Maryland State Police. So we started working this thing. And of course, the, the media, you know, with Washington being a fishbowl, the media took over and they were just, you know, all kinds of theories about what's going on. Um, so there was no, there was a, a day in between, there were no shootings. And then a day later, a woman 50 miles south of Montgomery County was shot in the back, walking into a Michael's um, craft store in the parking lot. Fortunately for her, she lived. So uh, the media uh, started jumping on this saying it had to be a trained sniper, you know, all these, these types of theories that were really screwing us up. And uh, then they started saying, maybe it's a military, uh, a person from the military heading South to one of the military bases. Um, but at the same time, we had a, uh, a witness in one of the shootings on October 3rd who said, he saw a white box truck speeding from the scene. And this was, was one of the most crucial tips that, that caused a lot of grief in this case. Hey, hey, Mike, can I also ask you something? Because um, I had lived down at D.C. I had an assignment down there and I had uh, got to be pretty friendly with a uh, guy that worked for the FBI that we would sort of on the weekends, we'd sort of socialize in that area where these events were taking place. And uh, in fact, I think we went to the, the the one gas station, the one or two gas stations that were involved here. I think there was actually an FBI employee that was shot too, right? Um, yes, Linda Franklin that's was right. killed at a Home Depot. That's right. Yeah, yeah, tragic. But so, but needless to say that this is a a very busy area, a, a huge population. Um, there's uh, people are nervous here. Well, I could I could add to that. Mm -hmm. I, I, I had retired from ATF two years before and I still lived down there in um, Northern Virginia. And so, so did my family. And that one you just mentioned about the Home Depot, um, my daughter calls me you know, in, the, in the midst of all this, once this hits the media, I mean, people all over the region there, instead of gassing up their cars, standing, holding the, the nozzle in the tank. They they set it on auto. They jump back in the car and they're hiding. They're all bent down 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 below the seat. Um, people are parking in uh, uh, shopping center parking lots and they're running zigzag patterns because somebody said if you run a zigzag, it'd be harder to shoot you. And they're running. I'm actually watching these people running zigzag patterns. So the the one at the Home Depot. I get a telephone call. Now this is going on for days. The media is like 24 seven with this thing. And my daughter calls on the phone and she says, uh, I'm next. Uh, I'm in the shopping uh, stop and shop or whatever it was uh, uh, Safeway next door to the home Depot. And they got us locked in. They won't let us out. There's been a shooting out front. 
So I'm yelling at her on the phone. What the hell are you doing out there? Right. But, <laughs> but like everybody's nuts. The whole, the whole region is upset. Right. I mean, Mike, um, it's just pandemonium out there with the way people are reacting. Cause there's no rhyme or reason to what these guys are doing right now. Yeah, it got it got really crazy with, and then the, the pressure with you know the political pressure and uh, the media. Um, there were over a thousand media credentials given out uh, at that site in my in uh, in Rockville, Maryland. So every day, the the you know Chief Moose had started to do uh, about five or six press conferences a day, which I joined him on, and uh, we started talking, saying, you know, we got to pair these things back because. We don't know what's motivating these shooters. If we keep, you know, if, if this is vanity that, that they're getting off on, us holding all these press conferences probably, uh, you know, helping these guys, you know, feel more confident. So we said, look, let's scale this back um, to just once a day, whether a shooting occurs or not. We're going to have a set time every day that we can go out and meet with the media. They'll meet all their deadlines for both print and uh visual media and they're only going to get to see us once a day we'll do individual uh interviews later on if we need to but we're not going to have reward these guys with a press conference every time there's a shooting uh it's just going to be a set time every day when it was slightly after uh noon each day and that uh helped us quite a bit um it helped us prepare for it um so after that woman was shot the fbi sack gary bald who had just he was brand new is the sack. He had gone out to ICP and came back. So he joined us. Um, well, he joined us the day uh, on the following Monday, uh, uh, the child, Iran Brown, uh, uh, was shot going into school. I think he was about 12 years old, 10 or 12 years old at the time. He was shot walking at the school. Fortunately for him, he lived. The doctors did a great job. Uh, but at that crime scene, that's where we're the first link that we found that these guys um, were listening to what we were saying at the press conferences. So early on, Chief Moose and I and our PIOs, and we started talking about what's motivating these guys. So let's just try some subtle words that we use and see if we can draw them out. And one of my assigned things was uh, it, it, when I could get it in, I would say, I don't know why on God's earth somebody would do something like this. And Chief Moose would have a couple other things. I'd have a couple other things to, to to slip in. And sure enough, after this child was shot, the death card, the tarot card was left behind. Mr. Police, call me God. Uh, do not release this to the press. So that we knew now that they were listening to the press conferences. So we then changed our um, strategy um, where how we're going to uh, hold our press conferences and try and communicate with these guys to try and draw them out and find out what their motive is. And also obviously to catch them. So um, the FBI sack Gary ball joined us after that shooting. And um, you know, he was again, new to the area, hadn't met any of the people, including myself. So he jumped right in with us and uh, you know, we came up with a strategy that um, despite the pressure that we're getting, um, that the FBI should take over that three heads are better than one. And, um, you know, this was still a local case. Uh, you know, we were going to try and keep it that way and we would just assist any way we needed to. So then we started the, the, 
get the uh, behavioral scientists and the negotiators meeting with us every day before our press conferences. And they would ask us, you know, the negotiators are saying, say these things, engage them, engage them. The behavioral scientists go, no, don't say you're going to, you're going to set them off. So it was like, I said, it was like the devil on one side, the angel whispering in your ear, what are we going to say? Cause they both told us different, <laughs> totally the opposite. So we said, okay, guys, thanks. We got it. Leave. And then the three of us would talk with our PIOs about, you know, here's how we're going to handle this. And, uh, you know, the public sentiment now was turning against law enforcement. Mm-hmm. You weren't enough. The shootings keep happening. You, you don't have any leads. So uh, our PIOs were instrumental there. They would kind of weigh what we're, what butt kicking we're going to take when we went out. So if we knew they were going to come at us that we weren't doing enough, we were proactive, came out and said, today we process X number of leads. We did this, we did this. We have over a thousand people working on this case 24 seven. And we just bombarded them with facts um, that took the wind out of their sails. So they couldn't put us on the defensive. Um, You know, we, we, did make a, 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 a agreement that we were not going to deceive the press. We were going to only withhold what we had to, that we needed the, the media and the public to help us solve this because doing it ourselves, it wasn't, wasn't likely to happen. So, um, you know, that's when um, I'm trying to think the next shooting. Then there was one uh, that happened down in Fredericksburg. How, how many shootings are we up to at this point? Um, at this point, I think there are six killed wow. and two wounded. Wow. Um, and there's, there was nothing like this before in, in the United States where you had these type of, in a sense, it was a, an active shooter, but was uh, periodic type of. Uh, and, and cross-jurisdictional. Cross-jurisdictional. Too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we had. Um, 12 local, local departments working on this, two state police agencies, like five federal agencies that were all involved in this task force. So, um, you know, it was, it was getting tough to, to all, all the information we decided and each, each, we, we made an agreement with all the chiefs. Number one, if you have a homicide or a shooting in your jurisdiction, you, the chief are the lead in that. And that the task force and I call it the, the center of the wheel um, was up in Montgomery County where the federal agencies and the, the hub of the task force was. Each site where a shooting occurred was off on one of the spokes of the wheel, had their own information. However, all the information was centralized at the task force. Uh, it was important that we felt that each chief, uh, whether it was a he or she or sheriff, uh, was the person who's going to be a spokesperson to the persons living in their area. Um, people were saying the Fed should go out front. And, you know, Gary Bald II and I agreed that nobody wants to hear from a suit from people they don't know. The people know and trust their sheriffs and chiefs. Uh, more importantly, we made sure the chiefs and sheriffs were always out in uniform. And that was to, uh, a confidence booster for people. And I've likened it to, uh, during the Gulf War, the uh, Iraq War, uh, if the Secretary of Defense went up, stood up in a suit and started telling you what the battle plan was, you're kind of just, yeah, okay, right. But when a four-star gets up in the BDUs and describes the battle plan, you've got a lot more confidence uh, in, in what the outcome's probably going to be. And that was important 
with all the chiefs. Some were elected. Uh, it was an election year. Um, and a lot of the chiefs, it was very, you know, we knew that was important. And that's what so the feds you don't always see, don't realize the importance of how important it is for a local chief to be the out front person. Um, so that was agreed upon and that worked well with all the police departments and sheriffs. Uh, could have done a better job sharing information and communications. That was one of the lessons learned. But um, back to your point, you know, I, I went on with one of the news people and they asked, you know, what do you tell your kids? Um, and I said, look, there's no playbook for this. None of us have ever experienced anything like this, uh, nor has the area. The public just went through the anthrax scare in D.C. Then we mm -hmm. had the 9-11 attack in 2001. And now we have this. People were scared to death about, you know, one after the other. How do we deal with this? So, uh, you know, that was a tough one for all of us. Even one of them asked, what do you tell your kids when you go home at night? I said, well, my kids were in high school. I said, yeah. well, when I do see them, I, they're usually in bed by the time I get home for a few hours. But you just got to tell them the good guys are going to win. This is not, you know, not the norm here. Um, none of us how many ever white dealt with this kind of How many white trucks did you, did you count? Oh, yeah. Anybody who had a white box truck was, was getting stopped. In fact, you'd go by Mako, Earl Scheid, the paint auto body. They were, you see off line out front of white trucks and vans. <laughs> and in the back, they're all coming out red and green and blue. What was that? These, you started to say, I think you started to say before, is that where did that lead actually come from? Uh, the white box truck. Someone saw a white box truck supposedly speeding from the scene at one of the early shootings. And it was important. We, and this was when it was just chief Moose and I, we did, we talked about, do we put that out there because nobody knew it was associated with the shooting. However, you know, it could be an important lead. So we decided we're going to put that out there. We had composite drawings done of a white box truck. <laughs> you, you, you didn't realize how many white box trucks there are in the United States. There are thousands and thousands just in that area. So, but we did caveat it to the people. Look, this is something that somebody saw. No, that we can't tie it to a shooting. You know, anytime there's a, a shooting, use your eyes and ears, your senses. But I call it groupthink took over with the public. And you could see it from the leads that came in. Anytime there was shooting, all the calls would come in saying, I saw a white van leaving the scene. Yeah, but, but what else did you see? Is it true that in one of the very first shootings, a witness did provide on a police report an accurate description of the car that winds up being involved? Yes. When the gentleman in D.C. was shot, there, the, the Malvo and Muhammad had been stopped earlier that night by a D.C. policeman. We didn't find this out later until later. Um just for a traffic issue, didn't get a ticket. They just told him, move on. The shooting occurred. Uh, some of the police responded to that shooting. There was a stolen car chase through the area with another blue car. And uh, some a witness did say, hey, I saw a blue car speeding away. Uh, people attributed that to the car chase when in actuality it was Muhammad's car that was actually leaving the scene. And, you know, the, the issue that we had there was back then, all agency uh, traffic cameras, all police information, all stayed separate. 
in each in each jurisdiction, and it was not retrievable very easily. And if it was retrievable, it usually took three or four days to get it. Um, the the other shootings overtook the whole thing, and that that went for that part fell through the cracks. It's unfortunate mm. that, that that we nobody ever picked up on that. Uh, we didn't find out about that until the case was over that that car had been seen. And, and you, you know, know how, how, how bad do you think we felt after that? Mm. Um, but how typical that is. I mean, you know, that's why what cold case investigators do, they go back over every report and they look for the little things that might not have been followed up on. And just, it's really more typical than not. Although today with technology, I think, I don't think you had license plate readers back then or cell phone tower uh, uh, analysis. Um, You guys were really flying by the seat of your pants back then. Yeah. And, you know, since then, you know, obviously, and that was one of the lessons learned, Hey, the law enforcement needs to be able to have all this information. All the dots need to be connected uh, much quicker than they were before. You know, these guys had been stopped, I think five, six times, including up in Baltimore by a police officer that uh, Muhammad or Malvo later told us that he was sleeping in a dumpster. The police officer approached Muhammad sleeping in the car. Malvo had the gun. Uh, aimed at the police officer that if he was going to do anything, they were going to shoot him. And the officer just said, Hey, you can't sleep here, you know, move on. And they, they got up and left and nothing happened, fortunately for that officer. But wow. you know, those, are the kind of, yeah. those are the kind of things we didn't find out until the case was over. Um, so um, I'm trying to think where I left off that, you know, we had all, all the media that we we're dealing with. And then uh, the biggest problem we had were, um, the leaks. Uh, we couldn't go a couple hours before what we had information on was getting leaked out. And we we're trying to figure out what the source of the leaks were. Um, we found the media had set up a long distance cameras and were, they had showed a whiteboard with different names and we're up on the second floor. Like how did they get, well, they had set up some long distance cameras from another building. Um, and then we also found, uh, tape recorders outside in the bushes outside where people are going out for smoke breaks that the media was placing. In the no, way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no way. Yeah. Um, so we had to stop. And we also found the media following uh, the task force members going to, to meals. So we had to stop uh, because they were sitting in the next booth, listening to them, you know, talking. So we had to stop everybody leaving for meals and, and bring meals into the task force. And everybody, you go to your hotel and back, stay out of the bar, stay out of these other places because, you know, they, they know who you are, they're following you, and they're, they're going to try and pump you for information. Um, so, you know, that became an issue. And then, of course, the uh, self-proclaimed media experts uh, were tainting the public's view that this has to be a trained military or law enforcement sniper. That's exactly who you should be looking for. Some so-called self-proclaimed profilers who claim they were all kinds of other titles got on saying, um, you know, it's going to be a white male, this age, this is how they were brought up. This is what you look for. And, you know, we were then having to go out and do our press conferences to try and divert the public back. Use your eyes and ears. Do not, uh, you know, focus and get tunnel vision. Um, So that was the battle we were having. And then, Again, you'd see the, a shooting happen and the leads come in 
and the people would just say, hey, I saw this white male, this age group, he used to be in the military. Well, did you see him do anything? No. So we had over 115,000 tips came in uh, in those three weeks. And I think they wheeled it it down to about 16,000 that had to be followed up. Um, So anybody who had a grudge against someone, husbands, ex-wives, neighbors, were calling in, uh, hey, you got all, you know, these are the people that you're looking for. Um, You know, we had a lot of ups and downs in this case where we had, we think we got the guy. Um, You know, we had one person who was a, a medical professional and the person's father called us to say, Hey, I think my son could be your guy. He's got this white van. He's uh, obsessed with this case. He's got all the pictures, you know, everything like a scary movie. And, uh, he's been out when all these things happened, you know, we get a search warrant shooting happens while we're at, on the search warrant. So, you know, we had a lot of ups and downs and it was tough to motivate the troops, you know, because, you know, every day, you know, a shooting happened, nothing would happen. And then you get a bunch of different good leads. So, you know, that was the toughest part from a leadership perspective is, you know, how to keep the troops motivated. Um, So what did you, what did you do to do that? You know, we'd go, you know, Moose, myself and the FBI SAC, um, we, we dealt with the uh, political stuff, the resources, that kind of stuff. We had, um, managers, um, task force managers in the, in the, uh, task force, uh, office. And we'd occasionally go over and meet with everybody on on each shift and, you know, kind of talk to them, look, this is the progress we're making. This is, you know, we're, and this was one of the words I use, we're one tip away from solving this case. And, you know, that's the kind of message we gave everybody that, you know, keep your head down, keep, keep moving. You know, we don't want to lose any more people. Um, and it was tough to send the people didn't want to go home and they were working 12 hour shifts. And, you know, we had to order a lot of people go home, get some sleep and, and take some time off. So, so what's the, what's the one tip and when does it come? Yeah, that's right. So um, we had, let's see, the, the FBI employee was shot. You know, one of the things that you still remember, and this, I'm going to get to the tip part is uh, when we're trying to convince the public that this is not a trained sniper doesn't have to be. I went with one of the, one of the uh, national news correspondents and said, look, cause she kept saying it's, this has to be a trained military or police officer former. I said, look, the shots that are taken with this type of firearm with a scope are not that difficult that you would have to be an expert marksman or a, 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 a trained sniper. Well, the preceding victim had been shot in the torso and lived. The next person the following day was shot in the head and killed. So, and I said that, and that was on, on, on the news. So again, were they listening? And they said, you want to see how good of a shot I am? Well, after that employee died, wow. we, we started, um, the, the person down in Southern Virginia at a Ponderosa Steakhouse got shot. Uh, he's walking out. He's on his way home to Florida. He walks out of the steakhouse, gets shot from the woods. Fortunately, he lives. We respond. An ATF canine finds the spot where the shot was fired in the woods. 
on a tree next to it is pinned a note from these guys because they were leaving us notes at the shootings now. And they would leave us notes with stars for all the victims uh, taunting us, do not release this to the press. Well, on that note, they they demanded $10 million and um, they wanted us to call them the following morning at a, at a phone number. In the, it was a payphone in the steakhouse. Well, this shooting happened late at night. We had to take everything for DNA and and we didn't open the, the thing up. It couldn't read the whole letter until about 10 or 11 in the morning. Well, the time passed to call these guys. So we had to go out and do a press conference to say, we got your message. The number you left us, fortunately, it was the wrong number. They were off by one number. But these guys got ticked. They were calling and it was an old late, an old woman who was answering. So they thought, oh we, were we, thought they thought we were screwing with them. So we had to go out and do this press conference. So they got pissed. It called the local priest in Southern Virginia saying, Hey, these guys are messing with us. We're calling them. They're not answering us. You tell them that we're the snipers. And if they don't believe us, we're the ones that shot someone in Montgomery. So the, the priest calls the tip line and says, Hey, here's what some guys just called. So, um, you know, meanwhile, they said, you know, where they want us to start wiring, put this money, $10 million in this bank account. And they gave us a credit card, a card number, bank account number. Well, it was a stolen card. So the, the account had been uh, vacated. So, you, you know, we tried to get the, the card activated again, but the bank said, absolutely not. That's impossible. <laughs> so we had to do this through a press conference with these knuckleheads. Hey, guys, you know, we'll try and get you your money. We don't want to say you can only get $200 at a time from an ATM back then and you get your picture taken, but that's beside the point. So we looked at this and said, Montgomery, and is it Montgomery, uh, Montgomery County? So the task force started saying, okay, let's check Montgomery, Alabama. Sure enough, they had a shooting in Montgomery, Alabama. That was a woman who was shot at a convenience store as she was closing up and killed. Um, With a different gun though, correct? A twenty-two. Yeah, twenty uh, a, a, a twenty-two long rifle, uh, uh, ammo, but a, yeah. a handgun probably. Handgun, right? Yeah. So, um, so we we w there was some evidence left behind. A, a Gauls magazine um, was left behind, and there was a fingerprint found on it. So the Montgomery police ran it through all the chat uh, through all the databases, didn't find a match. So we then ran it through the INS database and sure enough we got a hit on Malvo when he came in through immigration so now we knew you know there's a possible wow Lee, awesome Lee, Lee, Lee Boyd Malvo is possible now who does he run with so then we said to who did he come in the country with well John Muhammad the same day a guy out in Tacoma Washington who used to live with Muhammad calls to the tip line and say hey there's a guy John Muhammad used to be in the military he lived with this kid out here. They used to shoot a Bushmaster um, uh, firearm out in the back into a tree stump. The kid he had with him, he used to call him Sniper. And they used to play all these Sniper video games and all these other things. So the FBI SAC and I get our uh, agents out in Tacoma, and we, we jointly told them, low-key, nobody sees this go out and play clothes like lumberjacks, go to this guy's backyard, quietly cut this tree stump out, 
load it in the truck and we'll get back to, <laughs> Quietly. to Washington. Yeah. So this is only like an hour and a half, two hours after we gave this order and someone calls us into the chief's office and it's on MSNBC uh. where the, the FBI had put up strips, you know, lines in the backyard and they had all their jackets on. And then the ATF guy said, well, if their jackets are on, we'll put ours on. <laughs> and it was like, what the, we're like, what are you kidding? We, yeah. You wanted to, to go with the Davy tree service truck. <laughs> like, yeah. So needs to say there was some butt chewing going on right after that. But now we said, now what do we do? Cause this is going to, this is all over the news. If these two guys see this, then um, we're going to have issues because they're just going to go in the wind. And, um, you know, we had never said we were, we, we knew the, exactly the type of, we gave a general round, the type of round we were looking for, but we never really said everyone was linked to the same gun until later on. So now we said, now we got a problem because this is out and these guys are going to see this. So, um, you know, we then looked into John Muhammad and John Muhammad was a prohibited person because of a domestic crime of violence. So we looked and saw that he had pawned a gun, a Bushmaster, uh, 223 at a, at a gun store in Tacoma. So we went to the gun store, got all the paperwork, showed that John Muhammad um, had pawned a gun. It was in possession, a, felon, a prohibited person in possession. We got a warrant for John Muhammad based on that. We got a material witness warrant for Lee Boyd Malvo for the shooting in Montgomery based on his fingerprint being left at the scene. So now we're looking for the two guys, um, you know, that we had in our sights. Um, the following day, the bus driver in Montgomery County gets killed. Where, where was their, NAS, uh, their last known area that they were residing? Um, they had resided up until February up in the Tacoma area. Oh, really? Yeah. So ten, uh, nine months later, they're, they're now in the D.C. area. But they were living out of the car. What was, and, what uh, was their reason to go from Washington to D.C.? Was their family or? Muhammad's kids were taken away from him and they were living in Maryland oh, gotcha. with, with his uh, ex-wife. Mm -hmm. So he claims that's why he was, he was going back to that area. So um, now we have a warrants for these two guys. Then we sit and find out that Muhammad had bought a car um, from a used car lot up in Camden, New Jersey, an old police car. Um, so now we had a, a car description. So we put all this together and this is where it got, to the point where, you know, we had a lot of people who were threatened to be vigilantes to go out and find these guys. So we had all this information. We knew they were listening to us in press conferences. We knew it was a matter of time before the media, this was leaked, of what we were looking for. So we had a, dis a discussion between Chief Moose, myself, and the FBI SAC. If we release this, we risk these guys seeing it. That now we know who they are. They're going to go in the wind. They're going to get rid of the gun. Um, those are the risk factors of releasing this. Risk factor is it's going to get leaked. Um, the other risk is there's a lot of vigilantes out there who have been looking for these guys. You know, who knows what they'll do. It may shoot an innocent person and, you know, whatever. So um, our decision was made, let's, let's hold off an, another day. However, um, within an hour or two, it's on the news. And uh, we later find out another federal agency, unbeknownst to us at the time, decided they would release it. And it wasn't 
us or the FBI. It wasn't an agency that wasn't in a, as a task force leader. And this person later wrote about it in a book that he, he went and did it and is proud of it. Well, it worked out fine in this case, um, but there could have been other repercussions and there's certainly protocol that should have been followed. But beside the point that goes out um, uh, later in that night, about 30 miles North of Montgomery County in a rest stop um, in Maryland, rural Maryland, a uh, delivery uh, dr- driver goes into to use the rest stop and sees this Muhammad's car, which he saw on the news, parked in a dark corner. He then calls the police. Uh, state trooper nearby comes, drops, uh, swings in, blocks the entry and exit. They call for a SWAT, and a SWAT team, uh, you know, goes out and they flashbang the car, take the two guys out. And arrested them. Were they uh, were they sleeping? They were both both asleep. Mm-hmm. And of course, they you know tossed the flashbang inside the car that you know <laughs> they weren't they weren't going to be able to do much. <laughs> Except their ears were probably ringing for a couple of days. But um, so they took him into custody. And you know, I had gone home to try and get a couple hours sleep. And uh, I know I got called at about two in the morning. Great news. Um, you know, they said, "Do you want to come out?" I said. There's nothing I'm going to do. Tomorrow is going to be the the busy day. So I don't know how I did it, but I fell back to sleep for a couple hours. And then we all met the next morning. And then we said, you know, now, you know, we've got to do the search warrant on the car. You know, they already saw in a cursory search that the the firearm was there. Um, You know, we're going to, it's going to be a a media frenzy day uh, the next day. And The next day, we also found out that all the jurisdictions would be fighting over who's going to prosecute the case. <laughs> um, so we, we had used federal uh, search warrants uh, to try and keep it you know, consistent when we were getting search warrants throughout this case. And we, we did that also in this case, too. And um, you know, that, that morning when we, we retrieved the firearm after we got the search warrant for the car, it went to the ATF lab. Um, the, our firearms uh, expert who did an outstanding job through this whole thing took his time and went through every um, round that had been fired in all the shootings. And, um, you know, I was calling him like four or five times during the day um, because we were getting pressure from the white house, from the media, you know, is this, are these the guys and we had agreed that we were not going to say these were the guys until we could match up through forensics that this was the firearm used in all the shootings. So um, throughout the day, you know, those were the things that we worked on it. And what's our media strategy going to be? And and then we we're still dealing with all the other issues of now who's going to uh, indict these, well, get the arrest warrants for these guys um, because we took them in uh, federal the night they were picked up. But we took them to uh, police stations. And when Malvo was brought in, they left him locked up in a room and uh, cuffed. They come in, they find him up. He crawled, got loose and went up into the ceiling, tried to escape. Um, So then there was a a discussion over who's going to prosecute the case. And Attorney General Ashcroft was in charge at the time. 
and he agreed that this is going to be a local case. Um, you know, the murders, that's the more appropriate charge um, in each of the jurisdictions. So uh, they decided it was going to let uh, Virginia, well, Alabama said, look, we, you, we can connect them to the shooting here. We got a death penalty. Um, we'll have them convicted in no time at all. And the executions typically take a year and a half to two years. <laughs> so we're like, okay, uh, thanks. You know, we, thanks. You know, we'll, we'll take that under consideration. Um, but we had the strongest case in both uh, Virginia uh, for the murders in a gas station in Prince William County and the FBI employee in Fairfax County, as well as a, a murder in, in Fredericksburg and another wounding. And um, they would be tried in Virginia. So Maryland was pretty upset um, saying, hey, wait, most of the shootings happened here. Um, but at the time, Maryland really didn't have a death penalty. And um, I'm not saying that had uh, uh, was a final decision maker where they would be prosecuted, but um, Virginia uh, it was known for um, using the death penalty penalty when it was appropriate. So I think, judging by the climate at the time, political climate, that was where they decided to go. So you know, they obviously they were both convicted. Um, then they moved the trial up to Maryland, convicted them on the same charges there. Um, but Malmo, you learn you you learn a lot more about their activities. Yeah. At, at this point, that these guys are more mobile than you even believed up until this point. Yeah, actually, they did more murders before this crime spree in, in the DC area. We started to track their whereabouts and found that um, you know they did another ten murders throughout the United States and wounded wow. another, another three people. So um, in this over the, since from February 2nd up until October 23rd, when we caught them, they killed 17 people and wounded 10 people. And were they using the same guns as they no. moved throughout the country? They were changing guns on every murder. Yeah. They were using different gun handguns typically until they got to the DC area. Oh, handguns. Wow. Yeah. And what happened is that the, the, the uh, Muhammad had, pawned that Bushmaster rifle up in Tacoma. But when he pawned it, he went back in the gun store and had Malvo divert the attention and stole another one. So the dealer, when we went back to the dealer, he said, I, he, I never sold a gun to John Muhammad. Well, yeah, here's the serial number. We just trace it to you. How did he get it? Well, he pawned a gun here. Well, it's a different gun. How did he get this? So apparently Muhammad has stolen it. And this dealer was, had already been, um, his license had been revoked and for a number of uh, compliance issues. So uh, another person was running this person's business at the time. So they were pretty careless at the time of how they were running the store. So um, nobody even knew that gun was out there until they, they were using it and we, and we picked it up. But up until then, they had handguns. And I'm not really sure, I don't recall where they got the handguns that they had used to do all the other shootings. Were they shooting those long distance too, or they were a lot closer? All close up. Yeah. Just walked well, up to rob people and, and wow. just shot them. Yeah. So they, they, they were financing their trips through robberies and then yeah. and shooting people in the course of that. So, yeah, then, so the, 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 the big question, and maybe I interrupted you here, if you were going to get to it, the big question is why? 
that's still a big why. You know, um, Muhammad never talked, never gave any reasons. Malvo uh, is probably the most manipulative person that I've met and most evil, in my opinion. He continues to manipulate the media uh, with different shows and interviews he gives. Um, Muhammad's wife believes that uh, Muhammad was doing this, all these murders in the D.C. area, so that he could go and kill her, and these would all be buried in the other shootings that happened in the area. Um, You know, I don't buy that. Um, Malvo later says that they were doing this to create an army uh, to, to overthrow the government and all these other kinds of bizarre things that whatever he can get the media to, to listen to him say uh, for sensationalism. Um, what I think happened is they did a couple of murders. They were getting by, um, getting around the country by robbing people. When this happened in D.C., we later found out every time at a press conference, we later found out they would go into a YMCA and watch the TV, watch the news conferences. And Malvo later said all the people in there were talking about, these must be some real badasses. There's got a thousand, all these feds, nobody can catch these guys. They must be the best criminals on earth. Nobody can catch them. So in my opinion, they got drunk with the, with the vanity and they, they were just getting off hearing that the president was, was talking about this case. Congress members were showing up at press conferences and these guys were getting off on it, listening to people say, you know, who, who are these guys? Um, and I, I think for, that's what kept them going. For the sake of, the, of our listeners who might not be familiar, I- explain the, uh, the relationship between uh, Malvo and Mohammed in terms of uh, age and, uh, and, and such. Yeah, at the time, Malvo was 17, but Malvo were, lived in the uh, Caribbean. Um, and Muhammad went, lost his job in, up in the Tacoma area, uh, lost custody of his kids, then went to Antigua and a couple of other islands and started making false IDs to get people into the United States. Um, so uh, Muhammad befriended Malvo's mother. Uh, he had no fa- his father had left, Malvo's father had left. So Muhammad became uh, a commonplace around the uh, Malvo's household. And he kind of took Malvo under his wing. Um, Muhammad went back to the States, took his children without consent, took them to the islands and lived with Malvo. And uh, his wife found out about it, had his kids brought back. And then Muhammad then took Malvo back to the United States with Malvo's mother, with phony uh, immigration papers, Um, is is a work visa or something like that. Um, so that's how their relationship, uh, formed Malvo's mother. When she got to the U S didn't stay around long, went back to the islands. Malvo stayed with Muhammad. So Muhammad, Muhammad's, uh, how old is Muhammad at this time? I think he was about 40. Uh, he had worked, he was in the army in the first, in the Persian Gulf war, um, got discharged, um, supposedly for fragging, uh, his sergeant and a couple of his, uh, his uh, soldiers, um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure exactly the whole, all the particulars on that, but that incident is what he got discharged for and then held a n- number of different jobs and, you know, had some emotional issues, um, became a very angry person. 
So, not to, to 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 distract this conversation, but the the lady who is getting the telephone calls because the number was incorrect to the phone booth. What were they saying to that lady? They thought we were. See, they had called the task force number a number of times and got. It's another screw up. They got transferred to a number of different people, and they took their information but they didn't take it seriously enough and, and they didn't pass the information on, which is um, they got disconnected a couple of times from a bad connection. So they kept getting more and more upset. And then they would call, they start yelling at the, the uh, task force, the operator, and they would, sometimes they got hung up on. So they thought that the police were screwing with them. Um, <laughs> it, it, you know, we didn't find all this out until the whole thing was over. Now, when um, they called, but when they called that old lady with the wrong number, right? Were they telling her they wanted to talk to the cops, or what, what were they telling her on the I'm phone? Not, I, can't, I can't remember the exact conversation. I mean, but, um, I mean she was getting but, ticked off that these guys kept calling her. Wow! And she never called the police or anything. Let them know that these guys are calling me, asking me if they're cops, or oh, I want to talk to the gosh. cops. <laughs> you know, they did go, they said in one of the calls, they said they were going to go to this ATM for this, there was a, a certain bank I won't name. So we had, you know, set up uh, surveillance on this place. And sure enough, a va white van comes, goes up to the ATM at about the time these guys said they were going to go there. And they jumped out and there was just a couple of construction guys who got jacked up. <laughs> it wasn't these guys, these poor guys got, um, you know, taken out of the van and, Speaking about that, t tell us about the car, t the car that they got caught with. Yeah, yeah. this is Descri wild. Describe yeah. the car. Yeah. Talk about that a bit. During this whole thing, we're saying, you know, how could somebody shoot someone in a strip mall in a parking lot at night and nobody see anything? You know, people hear the gunshot, but they never saw where it came from. So um, when we, we arrested them, we found out, you know, it was a Chevy Impala, the back seat flipped up and you could crawl into the trunk from the back seat and they had, above the license plate below where the lock would be on the trunk lid they had cut an opening and they always stuffed a glove in there so the opening was probably about two inches wide by about three or four inches uh, high so that they would just stick the barrel of the gun out of the uh, above the license plate with the trunk lid just slightly popped because they were using a uh, red dot scope um, on this. So again, whenever they, they lined up the red dot is where the, the shot was going. So they didn't have a typical uh, rifle scope. So um, they just lifted the trunk lid up enough for that. They had earmuffs because we're saying later on, how the heck did they shoot from in? Well, he had uh, uh, hearing protection. So they would fire the shot from inside. Um, Malvo would stay in, in, um, in the trunk. Muhammad uh, had binoculars and he was the spotter and um, they would pick their target. And um, once they shot, they would just stay there for a few minutes, a couple of shootings. They later, Malvo later talked that they stayed and watched everything we did at the scene. Uh, and they had a rifle. Um, and that was one of the things during the press conferences too. We were, I had a strong belief we were going to be one of the targets because of all the, the, the media and all the cameras there. And it was a wide open area. 
um, that we were afraid one of us was going to get shot during one of the press conferences because it was, you know, the perfect place for them to, to get some attention. Did you, did you, uh, adjust for that? No, you don't because, have to say, okay. No, because, uh, it wasn't going to stop much, particularly if no. it was going to be a headshot, but, um, not a funny story, but it was, it was an election year and a lot of the politicians wanted to come and show their support. Uh, at the press conferences. So we tried to discourage them saying, Hey, look, you're, you're just going to be a target. It's going to be a uh, high likelihood you could get shot. So a bunch of them insisted on coming. Um, we said, well, we're not going out there with you have at it. And then they instructed us to come out and stand behind them for their little uh, show of support. And uh, the person who stood in front of me was Senator Mikulski, who's, not even five feet tall. <laughs> Everybody else had a tall person. <laughs> there I am, exposed from here up. <laughs> I tried to make myself as small as I could be. So, all right. So, where are these guys now? What? 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 what what's happened? Muhammad yeah. was executed in Virginia. Yep. Mal- Malvo is uh, serving a life term in Virginia. Um, he's got also got life sentences up in in Maryland. However, the Supreme Court is looking at his case now because uh, first he was going to get the death penalty, but then they ruled the Supreme court ruled anybody under 18 uh, can't get the death penalty. Um, Now they looked at saying, can you give someone a mandatory life sentence if they were under 18? So the Supreme court is going to, is looking at that appeal and whether or not, uh, whether or not he do it, he was convicted in state courts anyway. They, all they can do is to have him be resentenced. Um, so, so tw- twenty years later, the case is still, still, uh, still, still going. goes on, right? Still goes on. Yep. Wow. Incredible. But uh, yeah. Wow. What a time that was. What do you well, think? Why did you make hours that you put into this over that time period? How many days was the from start to finish for you? And 23, then it was twenty-three days. 23 in fact, days. one of the books that was written, twenty-three days of terror. So, wow. Um, yeah, it was, uh, you know, we typically, um, would just, you know, go home and get some of the guys stayed in hotels. I, I wanted to get home. I, I only lived half hour, 45 minutes away, uh, go home, sleep for four hours, get back. And, um, you know, it was important, you know, cause our families were scared to death too. Absolutely. You know, kids in high school, you know, all the sports had stopped, uh, any outdoor sports, uh, during this whole thing. Um, when they threatened to kill more kids, they put in one of their notes, your children are not safe anytime, anywhere that got leaked. So all the school superintendents in Maryland, Virginia, and DC called us in and asked us, uh, should we close the schools down? We're like, that's your decision. Mm. Um, but let me just remind you, if the kids are probably safer in schools cause they're locked down for six hours, if they're home, they're going to be out playing around in the yard, you, you know, and, and this had a big economic impact too, because if the kids had to stay home, the parents had to stay home from work. So there were pressures from uh, a lot of different places. I won't say where that you can't let things get shut down here. Um, so, and, sounds like COVID, man. <laughs> yeah, you got to keep things moving. You know, go out and give the uh, the uh, area that you or that you got this under control. You know that people should continue on with their lives and, 
you know, again, people were just scared to death. They didn't know what, you know, what to turn, where to turn and, you know, what they could do. But the, the, um, I, I, you know, in su- summing this up, I, I think that back then, because of the lack of tools in the crime solving toolbox, I think a, a lot of critical information was falling through the cracks. Information that probably uh, with the technology we have today might not have fallen through the cracks if if everybody used the technology the way they're supposed to use it. And that's the big if. Just like when people pick up the telephone call and somebody wants to talk to the task force, you don't hang up the phone on. You know, I mean, who who how do you how do you adjust for that? You know. Yeah, we had you know, again. There was over a hundred thousand tips that came in, and they were just getting bombarded. And there were a lot of crazy people calling in, bizarre. So again, you know, the the people who were the operators on the phone were just inundated. It's not an excuse. It's just a you know fog of war. Those kind of things happen. It's unfortunate. But you know, to your point, Pete, I think had we had the technology, and a lot of it was developed after nine eleven and after right. this case. Yeah. Right? Because we met with a lot of these technology companies later about, you know, how to bring all the dots together uh, more, much more quickly. All the uh, traffic cameras and, uh, you know, cameras from banks and all kinds of outside buildings, car stops, you know, all those kind of things to be able to make those more accessible. Yeah, DNA, I, also, I mean, everything, blood. The uh, the after action report that really uh, spoke to sort of those uh, task force concepts and as you said before, like leading these team of teams, uh, I found that to be really insightful. And I think that's helped out in uh, many of these uh, sort of active shooter incidents uh, after the fact, or excuse me, after that event. Yeah, the Police Executive Research Forum, uh, PERF did a great after action. All of us spent a lot of time with them, um, you know, going through, uh, you know, lessons learned. And and we were fortunate we could be honest. Mm -hmm. with them about things of course you, you got to be careful what you say about you know liability because people are always threatening to sue and you know that you were negligent or careless and those kind of things so um wow. you know most of the information we were able to get in that report so what, what are you doing now golf golf <laughs> you're, you're retired retired hey whatever retired. happened whatever happened to moose right yeah. after that moose moose disappears right he wrote a book and uh, which I spent a, close to 80 hours wow. working with the, uh, and he, he got the proceeds from the book, but then he also had a movie deal, which was not uh, part of his contract when he was still a police officer. So he uh, had to resign as chief and then uh, took a number of different jobs and then went to Honolulu as a, went through the police academy, became a, a, a road dog. You're from kidding. the start, no. Really? Wow. Is that is that where he is now? No. Then he moved. Huh. He's in Florida now. I haven't spoken with him, but he's apparently retired in Florida. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Yep. Oh. But yeah, he was. None of the. Not, there are several other people in the in the case that went off and wrote books and claim credit for everything they did on this case. But unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, I'm proud to say that the FBI and ATF, none of the people you know, took advantage of this, uh, this situation to, to profit from it. But I tell you what, <laughs> in, in, interesting story though. You should write a book on this. 
Yeah, there's plenty of them out there. And but again, I I just there there's a lot of lessons you know that you could get out there. But again, I I just not the type to try and profit from something like this. Right. You know, we we've had we've had some other guests on that um, when when they talk about some of their former colleagues writing books, they have the same look on their face that you just had a second ago. I, I, there's well, there's some out there that I'm like I, or I watch some of these shows and they, they they claim they were the task force leader and they were in charge of this and that and I'm like I don't even know who you are. <laughs> and some of them claim they did about they were a negotiator, they were a SWAT guy, they were like five different leaders and it's like you have no shame. Wow, you know it, yeah. it was a joint effort. There was no one person yeah. on this thing that you know it was a team effort and you know. You know, that's the way we looked at it. If you had to do one thing differently, or if you if you wish you had known something in particular at a point in time, what might that have been? Dig harder into all the local mm. jurisdictions about car stops and traffic. Yeah. Traffic. There were no traffic light cameras back then. If there were, there were very no. few. Yeah. No, you know, weren't do- ring doorbells or any of those kind no. of. No. Yeah. Pete, very few. Pete, to your point, the technologies that exist today would uh, it would have really helped out that case, right? But you know, well, what gets me is how mobile these guys were, yeah, and and how many others are out there that mobile doing you know, these we were, kinds of things. Had the, and we talked about this later. Had these guys used a different rifle or a different gun, it would have been that much tougher to link them if they dispose of the gun. And what I still don't understand to this day, and I hope no terrorists or potential terrorists watch this, why terrorists don't do something like this and just go from city to city and then come back to the same city later on to terrorize, a, a, you know, the cities that this stuff is happening where you don't know where the bullets are coming from, where, where people are getting killed and change the guns up and just keep moving from city to city, but always go back to another city to keep that fear going. It does, you know, I, I, you know, I've said this a number of times. I, as you know, I write a lot about, about, about a gun crime, but it's not even the effect of the gun itself. It's the effect of the fear on everyone else. And it's not even, it's the fear of crime. I think that gets people more upset than the actual violence itself, which only affects a very small number of people God forbid, you know, it's it's tragic that it does, but it's the fear that affects everyone else and makes us do crazy things. Yeah. And you can see that, you know, the fear in the, in the area, you know, the night we announced, you know, that we had connected these guys, there were thousands and thousands of people outside the media. Yeah, sigh of relief. Yeah. Kids, kids with banners showed up. I mean, people crying. People in yeah. the media were crying as we announced, you know, name by name. And my do- job was name each individual victim that we could. And the relief from people and then all the signs that you see on the overpasses of people, people just, you know, coming out in the schoolyards again and, you know, practice yeah. for, you know, it's just a, a huge yeah. relief for the people. Incredible. It, wow. Yeah, it was, oh, it was just like they did up in Boston with the marathon bombers when they were caught the, the neighbors, everybody was out on the street uh, clapping and cheering yeah. the police as they came back. Yeah. Yep. Wow. What well, a story. Hey, Mike, great story. And uh, thank you. we can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing it with us. And, uh, oh, thank you. Appreciate it. 
Glad to do it. Or I should say our audience. So th- thank you for that. Thank you very much. Take care, guys. And well, I you- taught him everything he knows. You know, I, right. I, I saw your little note on that, Pete. I was going to question you on that, but uh, yeah, I, hey. we, we don't talk about Pete's stories on camera. <laughs> All right, gentlemen. Hey, uh, thank you very much, and uh, be safe. All right, take care, guys. See you. Thanks, Good see you. thanks, Mike. Take care. Later. Say Bye. hi to everybody. All right, you too. <laughs>